0: Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of Negotiate Anything. Thanks for spending time with us today. It's listeners like you in 181 different countries that have made Negotiate Anything the most popular negotiation and conflict resolution podcast in the world. I'm your host, Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer, mediator, professor, and the director of the American Negotiation Institute. Before we get started, I have two quick questions for you Is negotiation a critical part of what you do? Do you need to resolve conflict and persuade at work? If you answered yes to both of those questions, visit our website to learn more about our negotiation workshops. We've traveled the country working with professionals just like you, and we'd love to have the opportunity to work with you, too. Check out the link in the description to learn more. Our guest today is Brian Ahern. This is Brian's second time on the show and if you haven't listened to the first one, here is a link in the description. It is one of my favorite episodes, so make sure you check that out. Brian is a master of persuasion, influence and sales and now is the proud author of an incredible book, Influence People: Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are lasting and ethical. I finished this book in 2 days and took 15 pages of notes. It is so good, so so good. So check it out. There's a link in the description if you're interested in purchasing So without further ado, let's jump into the interview. Brian, welcome to the show, my friend.
1: Thank you for having me back, Kwame. It's great to be here.
0: It's my pleasure. Your last episode was fantastic, and we're excited to have you back on the show. But for those listeners out there who might not have seen the first one, how about you just give us a brief synopsis of who you are and and what you do?
1: All right. Well, big change since I think I spoke with you last. I left my corporate job. I am now doing my influence people full time. And what I do is I teach people about the psychology of persuasion and how do you take all that science and research and bringing it into your communication. So you can ethically get people to do the things that they need to do.
0: I love it. Perfect. And so on this episode, we are going to focus on three of my favorite principles in your book, Influence People, which is going to be out by the time this episode goes live. So listeners out there, I highly, 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 highly recommend this book. It was hard for me to pick just three things to to talk about. So you'll most likely be seeing a lot more of Brian in the future because I want to go deeply into this this topic. But the three things we're going to talk about are the three C's of getting people to like you, how to be seen Mm -hmm. as more reliable, and utilizing contrast for persuasive purposes. So let's start with the three C's of getting people to like you. Tell us more about that.
1: All right. Well, what you're referencing is what we call the principle of liking. And that's pretty simple. I think all of your listeners will get this. It's easier to say yes to people we know and like. And if anybody's in sales, we all know this. We prefer to do business with people that we like. So the question really becomes, how do we engage this principle of liking? How do we not only get people to like us, but more importantly, how do we come to like other people and the three C's that we talk about are connection or common, what we have in common, complements, and then cooperative effort when we work together on, on things. So which do you want to start with, Kwame?
0: Let's go ahead and start with what might be the easiest one, connection and what we have in common.
1: Okay. I'm sure every listener right now can think of a time or two where they met somebody and they almost instantly like them because they found out something like, hey, you, you actually were born where I was born, or you went to the same college that I went to, or we have the same type of pet, or our kids are the same age. Any of those things where we connect with somebody and we realize we have something in common, it is just natural within humans to begin to like that other person more. And so the the SMART or strategic person, when it comes to influence and persuasion, understanding this, they look for those opportunities to find out what they have in common. Now, you can do it in the moment, and and that's better than not doing it, but the really smart people go out of their way beforehand to try to find out. So when they step into a situation for the first time, they can connect on something that they have in common right away. And an example of this would be, I met a guy years ago, he invited me to go out for coffee, I looked on his LinkedIn, and I saw some people that we had in common. And the first thing that I brought up was, how do you know Todd Alice? And he said, oh, my my wife was a teacher at a school where he was a uh, principal. He said, how do you know him? And I said, he was my high school football coach. And we bonded over this guy who had a real impact on his wife and had an impact on me. I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't done a little research beforehand. So for everybody who's listening to this, I'm sure you you get it. It makes total But what I would encourage you to do is do a little homework before you actually meet somebody so you can find out what it is that you have in common and make sure that early in the conversation you bring that up. Because the sooner they start liking you, the easier it is for them to ultimately say yes to whatever it is that you might ask of them.
0: I love it. This is such a brilliant point. It's so simple, but yet so powerful that I think a lot of people overlook it. And when I share this in in my workshops, sometimes people say, okay, this this is good, but when does it get to the creepy stage? When, when do we cross privacy lines? And so since your whole focus is ethical persuasion, I wanted to pose that question to you. What is the line when it comes to digging into the background of the person on the other side?
1: Well, I think anything that's public is fair game. And so to go out to somebody's LinkedIn, for example, they've publicly put that out there. So they're not embarrassed about it. They, for some reason, they want people to see it. If they are on Facebook and you can find them, essentially, it's the same thing. So another avenue is Facebook. If somebody's putting information out there, typically it's something that they're okay with people seeing. So I think those are probably the two most common platforms. But then simply Googling somebody to find out about them if they've been mentioned in an article. And the other thing I would say then is you don't want to inundate somebody. You don't want to say, hey, Kwame, hang on a second, because I've got 10 things here that I want to ask you about. And you're gonna, that's going to feel kind of creepy. Um, But if I very naturally weave things into conversation, it feels it feels very normal.
0: Exactly. And that, I think, is an expert point, too, because when we spend time doing research and learning a topic because of our ego, we want people to know that we know these things. We want to share that uh, so they can say, oh, wow. You're really smart. But oftentimes in this situation, they would say, oh, wow, you're really creepy. And so <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's good to have in your back pocket that you can weave in, like you said, but don't feel obligated to force this onto people. You don't want them to feel as though this is a tactic. That's, that's one of the major things. So as long as it can yeah. organically flow into a conversation, weave it in. If the opportunity doesn't present mm-hmm. itself, you have to have the restraint and know that you don't need to force it.
1: Yeah. And the same would be, could be said of the next thing that we were going to talk about is compliments. It's Whenever we compliment somebody, they tend to feel good about that. We all love a compliment when we see that it's sincere and the endorphins are flowing and we feel good. But if you went into a situation and, and you just were over the top with compliments, that would feel kind of creepy too. And that would maybe make somebody feel like, okay, what do you want? This is too much. This is not normal how much you're complimenting me. So it's wonderful to have all those things in your mind. And occasionally at the appropriate time, you bring them up and, and you share them with somebody. Uh, as an example, you and I, when we were talking before we started recording and you were laughing and you were talking about how excited you were, and I genuinely said, I love your enthusiasm for learning. It's it's infectious. That was very natural given the, the situation that we were in and the conversation we were having.
0: Right. Yeah. And uh, and it made me feel good, <laughs> you know, and it, <laughs> so it, it had that impact. And I think that the fact that it's genuine is really what matters. And a lot of times maybe you might feel especially if it's a difficult conversation like a negotiation or something like that, you might feel a little bit hesitant to give people kudos in certain times, but there's there's no reason for that, especially in the rapport building stage. If there's a if there's something that is mm-hmm. count- worthy of complimenting, then go ahead and and let that fly. And one of the things that you mentioned was genuine. It has to be a genuine compliment. When it comes to people's skepticism with receiving compliments, what are some things that they look for that tell them that it's not a genuine compliment?
1: Well, I think people for the most part have pretty good BS meters. In other words, <laughs> they can tell by the look in our eye, the smile on our face, the tone of voice, how we carry our, our bodies. We are pretty good at telling when people are genuine and when they're not. So here's what I would tell your listeners to focus on. Don't approach this principle and offer compliments and connect on what you have in common. Don't do that to try to get the other person to like you. Do it so you will come to like them, because the very same things that will make people like you will also cause you to like them. So when I'm focusing on what it is that you and I have in common, Kwame, or when I focus on what I can genuinely compliment, all of that makes me think more highly of you, enjoy you and like you more and I think that's where you start to sense like hey he really does like me and then you start to trust that whatever I'm bringing up is true and it's right and it's genuine
0: right I think that's an expert point and I remember that was one of the real light bulb moments for me when I was reading the book because I never thought of it that, that way but it makes so much sense sourcing and contract management our calendar is filling up quickly and we even have some workshops scheduled for next year if you think you might want one i'd suggest reaching out soon so you don't miss out check out the link in the description to learn more and now back to the show the linkedin podcast network is sponsored by tiaa in the last 100 years we've seen financial markets swing new currencies come and go decades of savings lost in days All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
1: From the minds of visionaries, the desks of disruptors. I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today.
0: And then what what is the third C?
1: The third one is uh, cooperative efforts. So studies show that when people work together in cooperative ways and they have success, they tend to like each other more. Now, you may be able to remember back in in the days when you played sports, you may have had somebody on the team that you really didn't like a whole lot. But boy, if you got in a game and that person was a difference maker because you're working as a team, you're working cooperatively, all of a sudden your opinion could change really quickly about that person. And so, especially if you lead teams And you have to mold these people into a cohesive unit. If there's ever friction, sometimes it's a good idea to take two people who may not be getting along so well, put them in a situation where they have to work together, and also make sure that that situation is something that has a very good chance of succeeding. Because if you put people into a situation that's really difficult and it fails, well, you may look at me and say, I did my part, Brian was the problem. And I might be thinking, I did my part, Kwame was the problem. So we have to be careful with this one. This isn't just about throwing people into any old situation and and thinking that's going to make them closer. It's not. It's got to be something where there's that reasonable chance of success where each person can look at the other and say, "I, I didn't know that about you, but you really contributed to the success here. And as you're thinking that, you like that person more.
0: That's brilliant. And I I really can see clearly how that can work within teams. And it's counterintuitive because if you know two people don't like each other, typically as a manager, you say, well, I'm not going to put them together at all. But what you're saying is that strategically in a um, situation where there's a high likelihood of success, putting them together on a team could actually help to bring them together. Yep. Perfect. And in one of those situations, let's say it's a negotiation traditional business style negotiation where somebody is in another company. Let's just say it's procurement. So you are on the procurement side and the sales team on the other side. Maybe there's some, for some reason, there's a little bit of friction between you and that team. Is there anything that you can do to kind of utilize this spirit of cooperation to get people on the same page?
1: Yeah, I think one thing that we talk about, and I talk about a lot in the book, is the principle of reciprocity. And reciprocity is the natural feeling that we have to want to give back when someone first gives to us. Sometimes the way to start off uh, a negotiation might simply be this. Kwame, I know you have some things you need to get out of this, and I have some things that I need to get out of this. But what I want to find out right away is, what is it that if you walk away from this, you'll feel like a rock star? Like you got everything that you needed. Your boss is going to say, wow, that was fantastic. And, and you're going to share with me, well, this is what I, I need. And you may then naturally say, Brian, what do you need? Or if you don't, I might say, that's great, Kwame. Could I take a moment to share with you what I need? And then I put that on the table. And what we want to start doing right at that point is look at where there's overlap to say, you know what? There's some things that we're far apart on, but let's focus on, we have so many things right here that we can both do that that we're acknowledging are going to make us both leave here and feel like winners. So let's let's begin to talk about that because once we have that cooperative effort and we are succeeding on some of these things, then when we get to the bigger issues and we need to tackle them, we have a better chance of solving that.
0: That's brilliant. And really what we're doing at this point is creating cohesion and and a team-like atmosphere, but also you're creating momentum. Because especially if you're in a situation where there are going to be some difficult issues that need to be addressed, if you mm-hmm. start off the conversation with something that seems to be a bit intractable, then it, it really, really hampers the, the progress mm-hmm. for the entire conversation. So starting off with something that yeah. helps to build some momentum is, is really smart.
1: So I was in St. Louis several years ago. I did a workshop with a large insurance agency. And when we get to the end of day two, we work on a real situation. And the owners of the agency, there was the dad who started the agency, two of his sons, and his daughter. So the five of us sat down and I said, okay, what's the situation you have? And they said, we are looking to move our locations from this town into St. Louis. We think it's going to be better for our customers, for our employees, for the city. There's all kinds of reasons to do this, but we're getting all this pushback from somebody who is on a committee for the historic preservation of of the city. And and they talked about some of the details there. and, And finally, I said, you know, it sounds to me like you both want the same thing this lady wants a building that will be beautiful and will preserve the historic look and feel of that part of St. Louis. You want a building that your employees will be proud to go to work every day, that your customers will be proud to do business with you, and that the city will like. So I think you want the same thing. Anyway, we strategized about that. And when they went into their negotiation the next week, and it got to a sticking point, one of the sons put that on the table and he said, I think we both want the same thing. And he kind of shared just what I did. And the lady looked at him and said, I've never drawn a line in the sand that I wasn't willing to cross. Thank you for being willing to work with me. And they got the deal done. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what, Kwame, I felt great because I, I got no other than having gone out there and, and done some training and I was working for an insurance company, I got nothing out of that except the satisfaction of knowing these people who I really did enjoy for a generation or two their kids who take over that agency and their customers, they're going to be in this building. And I can feel like, you know, 10, 20, maybe 25 years from now, I'll still be able to feel like I helped them do that. And that's a great feeling.
0: That's brilliant. And I, I, that's a really, really great example of how these principles can be brought to life in, in really practical scenarios. And the, the thing is, with these things, uh, and Brian, you and I know this, we can talk about this forever on those, those points, but <laughs> I want to make sure we get to the other two. The other one was how to be seen as a more reliable person or the things that you say to be taken as more reliable. How can we do that?
1: Okay. So most of us learn things from pretty reputable sources. We might have gone to good colleges. We might have worked for reputable companies. We may read well-known periodicals and books and things like that problem is a lot of times people get into a situation and they begin to share something and they never fall back on where they learned it. I could tell you, for example, and I'm going to make this up and I might say, you know, Kwame, two out of every three lawyers, hire a guy like me so that they can, and I begin to talk about that. Or if I had actually learned that statistic from a well-known source, let's say Time Magazine, If I said, you know, Kwame, I was reading Time Magazine yesterday, and it had this article, and it was about attorneys and their ability to influence people, and I begin to talk about that, that's no longer Brian's opinion. That's backed by the authority of Time Magazine or whatever that other source is. And that's the kind of thing that can be a difference maker, because we will contend with people's opinions all day long. Everybody's got an opinion, but we will contend a lot less when information is being shared from a reputable source in a factual way. And and that's a simple way to be significantly more persuasive and either be viewed as an expert or bring expertise into the conversation.
0: I love this point because in law, they say that no assertion can go unsubstantiated. So when you see legal briefs there, the citations are just... It's incredible how many things are cited <laughs> in legal writing. And so I think this is a really, really great point because I can think of certain conversations in the business world and in just everyday social conversations where somebody says something that is a little bit unbelievable <laughs> and then you stop and ask, where did you get that from? What is your source? And if they can't come mm-hmm. up with the source, it's essentially like they've said nothing at best. Or at worst, they're trying to deceive you or you they just look at you like you're incompetent, like you're just making stuff up. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? And so citing your sources is a simple but yet very, very powerful tool when it comes to being more persuasive and seen as an authority.
1: Yeah. Now, there may be people who contend with your source. Uh, that's going to still happen. But imagine you're talking to 100 people and you just share your opinion and 50% of the people don't believe it because they think it's your opinion. If you can move that number to 75 or 80 because you shared the source, 20%, maybe 25% of the people will contend with the source. But I just moved from 50% to 75%. That's pretty good for doing nothing more than being conscious of the fact that I should be citing sources when I talk about why somebody should take a particular course of action. And that's available for for all of us. And what I find is the vast majority of people don't do it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I I think it's just, it's leakage from our everyday conversations, because typically in our everyday conversations, we don't feel the need to cite ourselves or cite Mm -hmm. different things. But I think when it comes to more serious conversations. As the as the gravity increases, we have to hold ourselves to a, a new standard when it comes mm-hmm. to persuasion and how we have these conversations. And this is a really simple way to do it.
1: And I talk with organizations and, and they ask me about all kinds of things. And I, I say a lot of times, you know, you really want to train your, your core management team, leadership team deeply on these principles so they understand why th- why these things work the way that they do. But also then when they begin to implement change, it's not just we need to do ABC. It's we're going to do ABC because the principle of reciprocity tells us this and the principle of liking tells us this. And we think if we do it that way, we'll have more people saying yes. And now employees who could be skeptical about corporate change, if they've been introduced to these principles, at least they understand why they're being asked to change, how they're going to be asked to change. And if they've learned a little about these principles, they probably buy in much quicker because they're like, okay, it makes sense. I remember that. I remember hearing about that study where three times more people said yes, because they engaged that principle. This makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things you said in the book that I thought was really interesting was the power of using quotations. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah. When I do presentations, I'm quoting people all the time. Abraham Lincoln, Aristotle, Jeffrey Gittemberg, Zig Ziglar, all kinds of people, because I'm humble enough to know if I just say it, people may doubt it. But when they hear somebody like one of those people, or Dr. Martin Luther King, or whoever, they believe it right away. So my agenda is to Help people understand this and, and get them to adopt these principles so that they'll be more successful at the office and a little happier at home. And if I step back from that and I'm willing to put out there what somebody else famous said, I'm okay with that. Because in the end, I'm still viewed as more authoritative because people will say, wow. That guy's really well-read. I mean, he's <laughs> quoting all these people, and and they know who those people are, so they believe those things. So, some if you're if somebody's afraid that they're going to come across like they're not an expert because they're having to rely on somebody else, no, it's exactly the opposite.
0: I love it. No, that's brilliant brilliant points there. And now let's move on to number three, contrast. This is one of my favorite points from the book. Tell us what you mean when you're talking about contrast and, and how can we use it in these conversations?
1: Okay. So when, I, when we talk about contrast, we call it a phenomenon. It's not really one of the principles of influence that Robert Cialdini popularized because these principles uh, are not always available. You may not have an opportunity, for example, to engage scarcity where, you know, there might not be something rare or going away about what you're offering, or you might not have an opportunity to engage reciprocity. You know, some, some organizations, you can't do anything because it would be constru- misconstrued. So principles aren't available in every situation, but contrast always is, because human beings are always making comparisons. For example, I look at you, Kwame, and I think you're tall. Because you're taller than me, somebody else might look at you and think you're short because their brother or somebody else is six foot five. So height, tall and short, that that's all a matter of comparison. Expensive and inexpensive, it's all a matter of comparison. What I paid for my car, one person might say, "Wow, that's expensive," and another person might go, "I could get two cars for that. That's a deal." So everything that we look at, we we engage in this contrast phenomenon, and it becomes really important because if you put something out without context, then you're leaving it up to the other person to make comparisons. So let me give you this example. In a workshop that we do towards the end of the second day, we ask people to build a case using all these principles to try to get this kid back into school after he's been suspended. And it's so common to hear people say, the suspension was too harsh, and they leave it at that. And I'm thinking, OK, it's too hard. You think it's too harsh. But does the school board think it's too harsh? Is it too harsh compared to what? And then sometimes they'll say, you know, there's other things that deserve, you know, stronger punishment than that. And I'd say, what is that? And they'd say, bring a gun to school or having alcohol or drugs on school property. Now, the, the, in the scenario, the kid who's been kicked out was kicked out because he used inappropriate language toward a teacher. And so all of a sudden you see the light bulbs coming on where people are like, okay, I get it. I need to create the comparison. I need to, to like really paint this picture for the school board so that they can see that even though swearing at a teacher is bad, it's not worthy of being kicked out of school for three months. Because if we do that, what does that leave for kids who bring weapons to school or who have drugs or alcohol on school property? All of a sudden then people on the school board are starting to make the comparison. Like, yeah, what are we going to do with with those really violent offenses compared to? just using inappropriate language. That's something that, again, people fail to do a lot. They um, don't paint that picture. And and you know, as an attorney, and especially anybody who's a litigator, if you leave it up to the judge or jury to create the picture, there's no guarantee they're going to see it the way you do. You have to create that. And creating that picture quite often comes from your ability to compare one thing to another.
0: I think this is a really great point. And like you said, it's something that can be utilized in almost every conversation or every conversation if you're creative enough. For mm-hmm. you, would you say this is something that needs to be done explicitly every time or can it be done in a little bit more of a subtle manner?
1: I, I do it pretty explicitly, like when I'm having conversations about training speaking and, and things like that, because I know that if I put a, a training fee or a speaking fee out there, I'm leaving it totally up to that other person and what they think is valuable for a speaker. So I can go back and I can make comparisons to other speakers or other fees or other training programs. And I, I do that very strategically because I want them to be able to see that this is actually a really good value. The number might sound high right off the bat, but compared to something else, they might go, but that's actually a really good value. So I'm very explicit about that. I I do not let an opportunity to go by and just put a number on the table and and hope somebody thinks that's reasonable. That That would be bungling away an opportunity.
0: And what are some ways that this can go wrong?
1: If you make the wrong comparisons people do that a lot, too. This is a a really classic one where you hear people say something like, it's a shame that more people don't vote. And then they start reminding you of the fact that people died for your right to vote and and so on. But when I put out there that, you know, most people don't vote in non-presidential elections, that only creates a comparison point for people to say, if the majority of people aren't voting in this off-year election, why should I? (laughs) <laughs> what we, what you would be better off is talking about um, the importance of voting and and how the numbers of people, even in off year elections, are going up. But something that creates this this momentum, using what we also call uh, consensus. But if I make that wrong comparison, I can end up shooting myself in the foot. And and here's a, an example that was in uh, Cialdini's book, Influence Science and Practice. Uh, you know, you, you were just in San Francisco, so you can relate to this. If you are sitting in a terminal and you're waiting for your flight and you hear this flight is oversold, we are asking for volunteers. And then if they say something like, um, we'll give $10,000 to the first person who comes up and then they go, no, just kidding. It'll be a $500 voucher. <laughs> All of a sudden, You've got 10,000 in your mind and 500 doesn't seem like such a good deal. But if they did the opposite, if they said, and we are willing to pay anybody who, who will take a later flight $5, oh, no takers. Okay, it's 500 and you'll have people running up because all of a sudden 500 compared to five, that's a, that's a great deal. And, and these things happen all the time, Kwame, where people aren't thinking they're intending to be funny or, or they just want to make a point and they actually hurt themselves in the process.
0: Yes. And I think humor is a brilliant way to do it. So oftentimes when I'm uh, quoting a price or if I'm in a negotiation, I would jokingly say something that is absurdly high, something that I know they would mm-hmm. say, uh, be offended <laughs> by and, mm-hmm. and say it with a straight face and then say, don't worry, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Mm-hmm. What I'm really asking you for is this. and Compared to the joke that was done previously, it seems like it is a lot more reasonable. So, that's it's definitely something that we can utilize. And humor is a great way to do it because humor in general lowers people's defenses. And it's almost like a throwaway. Okay. Yeah. I was joking about that. It wasn't even being, I wasn't even being realistic, but now you've yeah. been uh, anchored <laughs> in that way right
1: but if you go into a situation and somebody says kwame we heard your podcast we love you we want you to come speak but we need to know what your fee is and you jokingly go 5 bucks ha 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 no and you tell them the real number that's going <laughs> to that's going to really hurt you if you exactly. joked and said 25000 no 20 no seriously and then you give them a number all of a sudden that number seems really really good Exactly. So, you know, we, we've got to be careful about how we use our humor, too. We just don't want to hurt the opportunity that's been put in front of us.
0: Right. And it shows the importance of how intentional we have to be with what we say, because mm-hmm. a lot of with, with everything that we do, because when you think about the psychology of what we're talking about, it might to somebody who is not well versed in this, it might not seem like a big deal. Oh, what's the big deal? But then once you Mm -hmm. really understand what's happening beneath the surface, it becomes abundantly clear that this was an enormous deal, (laughs) a huge deal. And it has a significant impact on the perceptions of the other side.
1: Everything that we say and we do, the colors that we choose, the music that we play, all of it impacts how people think, feel and behave. Now, most people are totally unaware of that because according to science, anywhere from 85 to 95% of our decision-making and or actions are driven by our subconscious. In other words, we are not fully aware of why we're doing what we're doing, but there are plenty of studies that show the use of color and the use of sounds and, and these principles move significantly more people in the direction that you want. So it doesn't matter how much people say that doesn't matter. You and I know, <laughs> and now your audience knows, it does, it matters a lot.
0: Exactly. And the fact that the majority of people out there think that this doesn't matter, well, that just gives us a competitive advantage when it comes to our ability to persuade.
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. And that's why I I think it's critical for people to understand this, because so much of what they do in any given day, if they really pay attention, it comes down to trying to get people to do things. You're in a big office. You need people to get you reports. You need people to help with this. Whatever it is, your ability to get them to do those things on a timely basis impacts your work and impacts your career and your opportunity for advancement. So it's critical. And it's also really darn important when you go home because I have found being married for 31 years and having a 23 year old daughter, there's more peace and happiness in our home when we all are more willing to say yes to each other. And we're not arguing it. We're just communicating in ways that make it easier. It's like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, I'll do that.
0: Exactly. And I think that's a perfect place to end this podcast on. And we're leaving the audience wanting more. And... I think I know where they can get more. Brian, do you have any ideas where they can get more of this?
1: I would love it if everybody listening went out and and purchased the the book, which is Influence People with the subtitle, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are lasting and ethical. And if you also want to just learn more about this on a consistent basis, if you go out to my website, which is influencepeople.biz, I've got videos, I've been guests on podcasts, I've been blogging for 10 years, every single week a new blog post goes online. So there's a myriad of ways for people to continue the learning, but uh, I would especially appreciate it. This is my first book. I would love to see people going out and buying it and and putting it into practice so they're more successful in the office and happy at home.
0: Fantastic, Brian, thank you again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. I, I really enjoy it, Kwame, and I appreciate your friendship. Likewise. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please leave a review and subscribe and tell your friends. Our goal is to help as many people as possible. And when you leave reviews, it makes it easier for people to find us in the searches. Thanks again for being a listener. I'll catch you in the next one.